guys. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Kate. And I'm Shivani. And today we are thrilled to have Jay Bellissimo with us. Jay is the general manager and chief revenue officer of the Watson and Cloud platform at IBM. He is responsible for the go-to market strategy across IBM's core cognitive and cloud-based technologies, including large transformation engagements, business partners, and major client engagements. Jay initiated the first wave of cognitive commercialization in key industries, which would eventually be adopted by 36 countries and in five different languages. Jay is a graduate of St. Michael's College and father of Ryan Bellissimo CMC class of 2020. Thank you so much for being here. Great. Well, thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here today. Excellent. So one of the questions we always like to start off asking our speakers is this concept of inflection points or times when you had to pivot or change in your personal and professional life. Would you be willing to share some of your own moments with sure, us? Sure, sure. Well, um, I've had a couple. I've been out of college for over 30 years now, and, <laughs> and uh, life to me has been a river, lots yeah. of twists and turns along the way. But I was a political science major and spent a lot of time studying economics as well. And when I first graduated from college, I worked for Congressman Joseph Kennedy. Oh, wow. Who is Bobby Kennedy's oldest son. And I really enjoyed that. I did a lot of legislative writing and was based in Washington, D.C. But having said that, after three years, I took an introspective look, as I've always done over the last many years. And um, at the time, Joe decided not to run for governor. And so I decided to try something else. So I moved over to a consultancy called Anderson Consulting and started deeply into technology, mm -hmm. which I hadn't taken a computer class <laughs> in high school or college. Fair. Uh, but having said that, from that, that was one inflection point because here I am many years later and I'm very steeped in the technology and more importantly, how the technology can be applied to solve everyday business problems. So what was that learning curve like? Because I, I come from a similar background of, you know, having just been kind of qualitative and a government major focus, but I'm now entering cybersecurity. And so for me, that was an interesting moment of being like, huh, all right, not only do you have to understand the fundamentals, but you also kind of have to understand the macro concepts, the policies and everything um, oriented around that. So could you speak to kind of what that journey was like? Sure. I, I, it, it starts with not being afraid to take risks. Fair. And we've, you know, we're lectured. Uh, I was one of six children. I have five children myself. And in a good way, we're always taught about be careful, be careful taking risks, especially at a younger age. But I was not afraid. I was fearless. And so along the way, I've taken a lot of risks. So I think that's the first place to start is not to be afraid to take those risks and try something very different because I was, uh, in effect, taking a, a 180 turn mm -hmm. from what I had studied for many years. <laughs> Having said that, I'm like a sponge. I love to learn. And even here I am 30 years later, and that's one lesson I pass on to my colleagues and my children, quite frankly, is you never stop learning. Because once you think you know it all, you're going to fail. So you always have to be hungry and thirsty to always acquire new knowledge and learning. It doesn't matter what industry, what profession, how long you've been doing it. I reinvent myself every year. That's incredible. That's necessary because you have to stay current, especially today with the advent of all these amazing technologies like artificial intelligence right. that are changing the world and the societies we live in. Absolutely. Um, and so sort of the, the transition of... Uh kind of deep diving into any subject area is, you know, whether you've had incredible mentors in this space, um, which I assume uh, that you, you, there was someone or some sort of group of people that, that really helped you get your bearings within something like artificial intelligence, which like you mentioned is anything emerging technology oriented is it's constantly evolving and, and quite a rapid space. Um, so could you share some of those folks with us? Sure. Throughout my career, 
I've always had the good fortune of having several different mentors, some on the business side, some on the technology side, some in leadership, sales. Really, it's it's one of probably the defining moments for me is always having, every once in a while, you might not have the best uh, mentor in terms of alignment with what you're looking for. But again, I've been blessed that I've had wonderful mentors. Most recently, Dr. John Kelly, who is a senior vice president of IBM, mm -hmm. has taught me a great deal. He's one of the, the world leaders in, in technology and thought leadership, especially in this area area of research and development and artificial intelligence. And another is David Kenny. Uh, David recently joined us. He was the CEO of the weather company. And I've had the benefit of working with David for the last couple of years and have really learned a lot just from the outside in. John is someone that's been at IBM for many years. Uh, so I benefit from the incredible research and development that he's led. At IBM, we invest over $6 billion a year in research and development. Wow. And John has been at the helm for many years. And David represents the kind of Silicon Valley effect, where he's done, I think, five different startups. And it's for me, back to the point of mentors, it's such a great opportunity to get very different points of view of two very, very successful senior executives. Absolutely. Incredible. So I'm very curious, given your background in government, I keep hearing things out of Washington and even from people like Elon Musk that regulations are going to define the future of AI and other emerging technologies as much as the technology itself is going to. What are your thoughts on that and having this experience in government and writing laws and regulations? What do you think that's going to do to artificial intelligence moving forward? Well, I, I think it's an exciting inflection point coming back to your <laughs> initial question. And I've never been so confident, more bullish on something than artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all respectfully have different points of view, and there's some brilliant people that stand on one side of the aisle, so to speak, and others stand right. on the other. Uh, and But at IBM, we embrace it, as you probably remember back in 2011 with Jeopardy. That yeah. was yes. a coming out event. Yeah. But um, we've been working for many, many years, for decades, on a lot of these algorithms around the artificial intelligence and, and some of these other supporting technologies. So coming back to your question about um, is it is it going to happen? How um, how fast will it happen? Will there be regulations? Our view is is we should let it happen mm -hmm. because it is happening. It's not a matter of will it happen. It's happening in all aspects. In my time, in the four years I've been a general manager within the Watson Group, I've been to over 20 countries, met with hundreds of clients, government officials, and it's amazing the, the opportunity of how AI can change. At IBM, we believe that it's not just about the technology. Mm -hmm. It's about how you apply it in very specific to AI for business. How can you help enterprises achieve great, great things? How can you help communities that we serve? Education, there's just so many aspects. So coming back to the regulation, we do think it's important to have some guideposts and guidelines, and we're proud to be one of several technology companies that are working in a not-for-profit around the, the ethics of right. these types of technologies and, and how do you help govern it and how do you set those guideposts. So we're very active in that, and we do think at the end of the day it's important to understand who's training these systems, where does the data come mm -hmm. from, and what is going to be the impact on society and the ethics that go with it. So we will right. continue to make big investments. But back to the point about regulating, I, I would look at it differently that certainly in some areas you do want to take a step back and look at it. But um, if you try to suffocate it, I, I think that's going to be a real mistake because in the end to us, what what AI and Watson right. is these days, it's really about augmenting that intelligence, that human capability. It's not about replacing humans. It's about this new partnership with man and computer 
and how can we enhance and scale all the incredible knowledge of people and accelerate it and help scale? I always like to say, I look at it that you take the one top 1% of your best employees. Mm-hmm. And what if you could have 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 of those types of employees? Think of the producti- productivity improvement and the value that would generate. And then you look at fields and professions like education. What if you could personalize education for every student, maybe some that have learning disabilities, like we're doing in the study of cancer and oncology. So I couldn't be more excited. And I think, of course, there'll be uh, different times for reviews, but, but, you know, there is a balance to it all. And and we're very excited and we'll continue to be very active in making sure back to the point about helping set the ethical boundaries and be very involved with academia as well as other technology companies and institutions. Incredible. So going off that point a little bit more, I know Watson's been in the healthcare space a lot. How do you work with a technology that necessarily is missing part of the human element, that there's some things between healthcare providers and everything else that you see or cues that people pick up? How do you allow for a technology like Watson or other AI to really pick up on all those nuances and be able to explain rationales for all of its decisions? Well, that's a great question. At the root of the technology, it really, we, we call it the four C's. Um, there's a cloud component. And the cloud, when you think about the public cloud, and you you need pure horsepower, yeah, right? Capacity. Absolutely. And a lot of these algorithms have been around for many years, mm-hmm. but we never had that capacity of the cloud, having that just sheer horsepower to be able to execute these algorithms with the massive amounts of data. The second part is the content. To, so to your point, there's a lot of data, and 80% of the world's data is unstructured. So think of text, blogs, images, videos, MRIs, x-rays. All those um, types of data have really been a challenge to to really um, to evaluate and to help make decisions off of the data. There's just so much data when you think of Internet of Things and all the different types of data collection. So the second part is around the content. The third is the compute, and that's the actual algorithms that will take all that. So think of the algorithms as the engine and the content is the fuel. And then lastly is the, uh, the whole conversation and how do you communicate all this great technology in these amazing insights that you can derive from all this information and data and ultimately present it in a, in a natural mm-hmm. human way to people. Because in the end, that's a very important part when you talk about healthcare or these other areas. Again, it's not man versus machine, it's man and machine. Mm-hmm. So for example, the work we're doing with Memorial Sloan Kettering, where you, we're working closely with the oncologists. We initially started with specialists in breast, lung, colon, and rectal cancers. So it's in combination because these systems are probabilistic. They're not the Deterministic, which means they're not rules-based. If this, then do that. Right. They basically will go through all the information and they understand, they reason, they draw hypothesis. The more data you feed it, Watson loves data. It reads <laughs> 800 million books a second. That's incredible. So it's got wow. an incredible capacity, but it's what do you do with the data and, and to the point about the reasoning. So it reasons, but you interact with people. In the case of Memorial Sloan Kettering, we're interacting with the oncologist in its teaching and training. And you have this learning process. Mm-hmm where you have that human interaction. And that's really where the power comes in, especially when you think about AI for business, because you hear about a lot about Echo and all these other technologies, but that's more of an AI for consumer, where it's basic question and answer. This is really understanding an industry, understanding a profession, the language, and then interacting with specialists 
as well as looking at the data, curating the data, and then ultimately using that information to help make strategic and business decisions that normally you couldn't make because you're so overwhelmed with the mountains of data. Right. So when you when you speak to anything that utilizes the cloud platform or deals with, you know, the massive amount of data that Watson does in, in industries like healthcare or education, um, where it's it's really primarily you know, PII data based, uh, so personally identifiable, excuse me, data. How how do you go about preventing the breaches that have really taken over the headlines? Anything from, you know, human error having to do with it. So for in case like the Equifax breach uh, to Amazon S3 buckets being available um, at, for anyone to really go in and get that uh, that data and, and really take advantage of uh, what's been gathered by AI. So how what's IBM's approach to really making sure that the industries, the organizations that they partner with have a secured platform? Well, security is and will always be at the forefront Absolutely. of everything we do, because security is just so important, when you, especially when you talk about the explosion of data. So we have a, a secure security business, and that's all they focus on. And across our whole business, all our solutions, go-to-markets, our offerings, everything is rooted, again, on the principles of our security approach. So we are very conservative, but we're very aggressive when it comes to investments. So whether it be the public cloud, the private cloud, just the way we exchange data or load data, migrate data in the cloud, we have as good as security standards as anyone in the market because we've made significant investments in those types of uh, security platforms and, and tools. And mm-hmm. we'll continue to do that. But it's a very serious topic. We've seen, as you alluded to, <laughs> some breaches uh, in other companies. And, and so we're proud in that we think we have a leading security business and right. practice and the tools and technology that help clients be able to go to bed at night knowing that their data in their privacy is protected. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and so you've had a quite a long career with IBM. I, I think the your starting date was 1991, if I'm correct. Uh, yes. Well, um, so a little little nuance. To okay, that. So, gotcha. Uh, so when I, I worked for on the Hill for about three years, right. Capitol Hill, and then I moved over to a consultancy mm-hmm. for um, until 1998. I was a partner at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Okay. And then in 2002, we were acquired by IBM. By IBM, right. So I've been part of IBM for 15 years, and it's just been truly an amazing experience. And, and the thing with IBM is there's not many companies that are 105 years old. Fair. We're the only technology yeah. company that's 105. Right. And you don't stay a company that long unless you're always reinventing yourself and, and always using innovation as a platform for the way you lead the business. And we are so fortunate to have such an incredible leader in Ginny Rometty. Uh, and she's been guiding IBM for the last several years. And she's always made it a point, as much as we focus on innovation, that we also continue to exercise the principles and the values of our company. And a big part of that's our people and skills. Mm-hmm. And you asked me personally about my skills. And as I said, it's like a river. You know, <laughs> you're always learning and absorbing. Um, but, but that's something that's always been at the forefront. And when you talk about AI and cognitive and all these new types of technologies, Internet of Things, blockchain, skills are at the core of that. Absolutely. And it's not just not the skills at IBM. We are very much out in the marketplace and working in the, with governments around the world to advance technology in curriculums, mm-hmm. educational curriculums, because that's going to be key for everyone, including the U.S. There's, I think, five to six million open jobs right now, and they're not open because of AI, you know, displacing. <laughs> it, they're open because we need to better tool and equip our, our students of tomorrow, and so we continue to make significant investments in the educational system and curriculum. Coming back to what are the core skills, and a little later we'll be talking to the CMC students, um, but, but it's math, it's the science 
sciences. Mm -hmm. It's to think critically. It's problem solving. Some will say, well, that's very basic. It is, but it's something that sometimes doesn't get paid attention to enough. So we're all for, obviously, computers and all this great technology, but there are fundamentals such as thinking critically and really being a good, good problem solver, irrespective of your major. Yeah. Some of the people in our group, I was political science. We have people that were literature majors, and it's really people that just have that common understanding of, of just being able to think critically and, and be in a mode of always trying to solve problems, whether they be business and or technology related. Absolutely. And so you, you know, you graduated from St. Michael's, a liberal arts college. Here at Claremont McKenna, we, we definitely are privy to an incredibly unique education where we have um, a few undergraduate research institutes on campus. And day one, you're, you're told that, you know, there's such utility in making education a, a practical and something that you can apply and practice that application during your four years in college. Um, but IBM has has personally, you know, created and crafted partnerships with uh, schools like MIT, which I, I believe it was uh, one of the biggest AI focused research um, partnerships that that exists to date. Uh, and not only is it it's something where you're, you're creating innovations, um, if I read about this correctly, it's also cultivating that innovations to make sure that it has access to the marketplace. Um, so in your in your mind, what is the role of schools and especially um, something where I, I'm a big proponent of liberal arts educations, but how can we do better in making sure that we do have those skills for the future? Yeah, well, so a great, great question. A couple points. So back to MIT, we, we value the partnership. It's a longstanding partnership. And like IBM, MIT is always pushing the limits and they always want to advance society and technology. They, they coined the term artificial intelligence, if I'm not that, that, incorrect. That's right. Yeah. So it's been, we've had a wonderful partnership with over 100 universities, formal partnerships. We're working in some countries like South Africa and, and other countries where we're helping update curriculum, such as, you know, AI type mm -hmm. uh, curriculums to help students advance. I was in South Africa about a year ago, and it was interesting. I, I gave a speech in Johannesburg, and we had a great roundtable with all the business and government officials. And that was one of the big things was how do we keep students in country? Because typically when they, they um, develop these skills at the college level, then they leave the country. Right. How can we keep them? Uh, and it comes back to how do you stimulate the economy? How do you create jobs in this new wave of AI and other technologies? Partnerships with schools like NMIT can really help that. To the second point around liberal arts colleges, right? We absolutely have an incredible focus on engineers and data scientists and the traditional occupations mm -hmm. and majors you would expect. But having said that, we're also looking for just really uh, you know, bright people that are motivated, that have a, a different view on things. And because in the end, as great as the technology is, we need people that understand the business side of the equation. So we look at people that know supply chain and logistics and other parts of business, finance majors to help us run the businesses, be part of the businesses. So we really look for a collection of skills and disciplines. Uh, coming back to Claremont McKenna, one of the best institutions I just Red Forbes, uh, yeah, top list yeah, number, the second, two. number two. Pomona, for right. What was really neat were the five C's were, were in the top 25. Yeah. yeah. So that's a testament to the five C's. That's so absolutely fair. Go five C's. <laughs> um, but coming back to liberal arts, it, it's, a, it's a great background. And whether it be IBM or any of these uh, technology companies or even outside technology, it really comes back to be really developing critical thinkers that understand where all this is going, whether it be the business, the technology. And I, I think school like Claremont McKenna have such an outstanding curriculum, they're going to push the students. And then the third and final point, and later, if you see my presentation, I, there's a great Denzel Washington video. I don't know if you ever saw his commencement address at Penn. Oh, 
wait, no, I, five I, years ago. I do recall he, it. Yeah, it's his theme about fall forward, mm-hmm. and he just basically shares that you know his whole life, his parents lecture him, "Don't, honey, be careful, <laughs> don't, don't fall back, fall back." He's uh-huh. like, you know, I never understood that. If I'm going to fall, I want to fall forward. Yeah, I want to fail because if you're not failing, you're not trying. If you're not trying, you're not living life to its fullest. Absolutely. And I'm a big believer, and I espouse a lot of that philosophy. Is you can't be so controlling to think, oh, I, I've got to get an A or I've got to do this. Of course, you always aspire to do the best, but you, you've got to take risks. I, I say it professionally, but it, it starts in college. I mean, maybe take some courses you might not normally take to stretch your thinking. And, and that's the type of thing I, I think will serve you well in later years. So coming back to, you know, the, that liberal arts education, right. I think it's a great foundational type of background to have as you enter the workforce. Well, I mean, I think that that perfectly encompasses um, one of the the last questions we like to ask in our interviews is, you know, you defining your own personal definition of success, but also, you know, if you had to give the student body or folks at CMC or, or colleges and universities across uh, the world um, advice on how to define success to themselves, uh, what would that be? I would say it very simply, love what you do and do what you love. And in the end, be a good person. And I know that sounds incredibly simple, but, but easy formula and, right there. And um, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, I lost a dear friend. He had worked 35 years, and long story short, he passed away. And he was one of my mentors. And um, that was one of the things he always instilled in me is just to have great values, be, be, you know, balance whatever your personal commitments with professional. And in the end, love what you do and do what you love. And it's as simple as that because there's so many different opportunities. There's going to be so many ups and downs in life. You just have to stay positive, be confident, not arrogant, but confident, and ultimately be a great team player and, and just be a good person. As I tell my five children, that I mean, that's what you want to be. We as parents, we try to instill those principles and the upbringing of, of, of the values that you as a person or a family represent. And in the end, that's all you can hope for. And I think it will serve you well in, in, in the professional life, whether it be government, you know, private, whatever you go into, just be confident and really just get the most out of life because you never know what's around the corner. But every step of the way, you, you're going to learn. If you don't think you are, you're mistaken. <laughs> um, and just kind of go with the flow, so to speak. Well, thank you so much. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you very much for joining us, Jay. Well, thank you, and best of luck. Thank you so much. And to all the listeners out there, remember to stay hungry. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very much appreciate your time.